0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I never studied history at university but I more than made up for it with my Ideas Roadshow experience, where historians make up, by some distance, the largest single category of guests. Why? Well, I suppose I could start developing some detailed theory about how they're more attuned to the human condition or something, but the truth is that it's more personal than that. Virtually every historian I've met is both a font of captivating insights and personal warmth. On the whole, there's nobody else I'd rather be hanging around with than historians. A particularly good example of what I'm talking about is UCLA historian Teo Ruiz. An internationally renowned scholar of the social and popular cultures of late medieval and early modern Spain, Teo naturally has many captivating historical and cultural insights to offer. But even more impressively, he is, quite simply, one of the most delightful people you will ever encounter. A recipient of the National Humanities Medal, Teo has long been one of the most popular professors at UCLA. A fact that is completely unsurprising to anyone who has ever had the pleasure of meeting him. Reading your book was an interesting experience for me. There's a mix between the personal and the objective. That is to say, there's a, some things are very difficult to decouple between subjective experience and objective experience. And that to me is a theme that came up time and time again as I was reading your book. And you're very explicit about it, but sometimes it's implicit. So let me be more specific and tell you what I mean and then ask you to comment yes. a little bit about it. So I pick up this book called The Terror of History and I think, well, oh, The Terror of History and there's something about Western civilization, starts off uh, with, uh, with a portrayal of, of 14th century Florence and imagine what happens in 1348 when the plague comes through, Boccaccio, the Decameron, how do people react to this horrible event which Uh, when the bubonic plague comes and wipes out this huge portion of the civilization. Um, And I think, okay, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how people en masse, societies, throughout history, respond to these cataclysmic events. And so things are all set up pretty well. There are three different ways in which they can respond to this, they can respond to this, by recourse to religion, they can respond to this by recourse to, uh, to, to pleasures of the flesh, and senses, and, and consumerism, or what have you, or they can re- respond to this by retreating to some higher realm. So I, as this uh, somewhat analytically influenced individual, think, nah, I got a hold of this. I know what this book is all about. And then lo and behold, it's tacking here, it's tacking there, there are personal issues over here. What we mean by escape from history is not only how do we deal with these cataclysmic events, mm-hmm. we talk about aspects of the human condition, we talk about what it is to be confronting death, how we can stop time. And so, at some level, when I'm first starting to read this, I'm getting frustrated because I think, I don't know how to get a hold of this thing, I don't know what's actually going on. But then I think, no, this, this is part of the message, this is another way of looking at things from a somewhat different perspective. When you really have the personal, the the aspects of the personal human condition, how can we ascribe meaning to our existence? How can we uh, pursue the good life? How can we confront horrible personal tragedies? And the objective nature of what happens to civilizations during very difficult times, power, authority, how things are being manipulated and so forth, these two things are distinct and yet they they overlap. And so, um, this is a very long, rambling <laughs> introduction to say that when I'm reading this, I see this as almost two books. You talk about it being a confession at some level, and at the same time, there are aspects of what might be a historical thesis. Is that in any way what you had imagined or a, an objective reader would actually feel when they picked up this book, this, this tension between these two things? Does that, does that I, ring any I, bells I, at all?
1: I, I think that the, that the book, um, which has a very long genesis, uh, is, uh, is really a little bit of a narcissistic endeavor uh, because I am concerned with the world at large and how people react to, to catastrophes. Uh, that is to say, the case of Florence that I gave, but all the cases as well. But in t- to a large extent, it's also about me. And, and I could tell you something about how this book gets to be done. Uh, I have been teaching for 40 years. For 41 years, a class on mysticism, heresy, and witchcraft, which I named the Terror of History, because essentially is a way in which people react to this. It dealt mostly with religion, so it was orthodox religion and heterodox religion. And I have gotten several. I made a tape, which I was uh, the teaching company made a tape, and. there have always been an interest in publishing this, the, 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 the course that I taught for the great courses of the teaching company, because it could also be a kind of manual that could be used in my classes. But a very, uh, and I, I began to think about this, and a, a very perceptive reader said, no, 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 this is not about this, it's about you, it's about what you want to do. And so I began to write these things, with no intention whatsoever of publishing it. Um, I really did it for myself. And so in that sense, there is that element of sort of faux memoir. It's not a memoir, it's not an autobiography. I don't know that I w- ever want to write anything like that. But it is it's also that letting out a little bit pieces of myself. And I would tell you what the genesis of this is. The genesis of this is that in a very difficult period in my life when i was having serious issues with my personal life and so on i began to write little stories which i wrote and i think i mentioned so that in the that book one, one
0: per year yeah said. yeah i
1: wrote one a year i began in 78 which was a difficult year in my life and i t- did that for 11 years when my life changed in radical ways and uh, Essentially, these were not intended for publication, were little anecdotes, little stories, some I couldn't write, so like one about my father's death, I I couldn't write it, so I wrote something else, something comic, uh, Cubans and airports, what happens to Cubans when they go to airports.
0: What does happen to Cubans when they go to airports?
1: Well, they they, they love airports, so you, you are arriving from New York and Miami and everybody goes to You know receive you it's it's like 20 people at the airport waiting for you and everybody else is looking like who is arriving, and you know, it's Howard, whose relatives and friends of the relatives and you know, people who don't even know you come out to the airport to receive you. It's, it's like it? a big party, going, you know. No. It's just a, oh, you're going to the airport. I go with you. You know why not? Uh, so it's it's always like that, or or the fact that I do take people to the airport, or I pick up people at the airport. That, so yeah, you have this as well. Oh yeah, yeah. They, it's inconceivable for me to for, for you to arrive and for me not to be there waiting for you. It's it's a cultural thing. It's a, it's a kind of nice. cultural. Uh, should we say, bestish that remains there. It's wonderful. Airport parking mm-hmm. lots must love people. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so I t- began to, to think of these stories, and I, I began to, in a sense, connect them to the larger issue of how we do that. And so the, the book, lingered On, I thought that it was such a self-indulgent book that I didn't want to ever publish it. And Brigitte von Reinberg at Princeton University Press, I actually liked it a lot, mm. and which I never did. And, um, and then I had another book, a big scholarly book, which in fact, John Eliot was one of the readers, and mm. on festivals and king's travels in 16th century, 15, and I think it was a kind of thing. I published this, but I also published that. And that's how the book came out. So I had not finished the last chapter, which is the one that I like best. Mm. in which is the one about aesthetics right. because even though I say none of this is really Superior to the other no, I know it's only really. superior by the one who experiences right. them,
0: but I take issue with that by the way But anyway, yeah, but even but, though you say that
1: but nonetheless the one I really like uh, the the answer that I really like is the aesthetic one mm. is this understanding of the world through aesthetics to through a search for beauty or sure. knowledge or
0: well, not surprising given your line of work.
1: That is correct. So, I wrote that in Paris, and I one of the things that emerges there is also the the, the deep awareness of of being in Paris and reading Proust and and connecting sure. all that incredible sense. So, in that sense, the book is two books. There's right. one about me, disguised in many ways, uh, presented in a kind of very hesitant and sort of restricted fashion. And another one is about historical processes. I think that the the point here is not an original one, is one inspired by Walter Benjamin and other people, is that the world as it is, is a particularly painful place to be we try to make meaning in many different ways. So it's not even a question of facing a tragedy or facing a catastrophe. Right. So what do we do? How do we, in a sense, come to terms with the lives we live? What do we do that gives meaning to our lives when deep inside we know that there is no meaning, Right. that it doesn't really matter? Because this,
0: this searching for meaning, this is, a fundamental aspect of a human condition. This, this would happen whether or not there was the bubonic plague or whether there wasn't the bubonic yeah. plague. I mean,
1: if it is not one thing, there is another.
0: Right. Well, the bubonic plague, of course, was a big deal. <laughs> so one doesn't want to trivialize it. Mm-hmm. But but it, this is this is naturally associated, of course, with uh, with being human and, and, and trying to impose meaning in, in all sorts of ways. The hesitancy you mentioned was something that definitely comes across uh, yourself deprecating orientation, you just use the word narcissistic and so forth. I would personally and I'm not an editor and I have no idea what sells sadly but I would I would I would encourage you to uh, to just embrace your personal views because I as a reader I quite, I quite enjoy it and then you, you put this well I don't really know what I'm talking about or I shouldn't really say this this has been said before many
1: times you know you keep getting it
0: just you should I, for the rest of this discussion, I would like you just to hold forth on your on your <laughs> personal views. Well, I,
1: I I always have difficulties doing that. I think that uh, it's not a sense of modesty at all, because I think only the people who ought to be modest are modest or should be modest. And so it's not a question of modesty, but it's it's also a question of the uncertainty, mm-hmm. of the of the un- deep understanding of the of the feeling that. I cannot pontificate. I cannot pretend to really know more than I truly know. And what I do know is that there is always this knowing doubt, this sense of that that I am sort of faking my way through life. Mm. I, I really mean that. This is not for the purpose of the interview. I, I this sense that a part of me is something that I had as, a, as an adolescent, very strongly, that a part of me was sort of, in a sense, looking on the other part of me acting a life. And so since I have that, that deep sense of, of division within myself, of, 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 a, of a very kind of critical, cynical part of me, sometimes looking out in the way in which I I live my life and the things I do and the things I write, um, then I am always hesitant to, in a sense, put out and pontificate or, or argue or, or or hold views with total and complete conviction because I, mean, I, I was reading certain things at a certain age that really shaped me and made me who I am and, and I, I have been gone back to rereading everything I read between twelve and twenty. So because I want to see how I ended up where I ended up. Right. And I always remember Nietzsche saying that you it's not a question of having the sort of the strength or the your convictions or your ideals, but rather of questioning those ideals and those convictions all the time. Obviously I have certain views that are very solid politically, for example, very much on the left. And, uh, but, but then I also realize that it's very lovely to espouse all these views in public or to my students about the injustices of the world or the inequality of the world. But then I am complicit in this inequality as well. Sure, but that, that, doesn't, I, that shouldn't
0: prevent you no. from espousing no, no, no. them nonetheless.
1: I know, but, but uh, that there is an extra step that I should take, which I obviously have not taken. Another road that I did not follow, right. which would have been a, a, a more, how should I say it, difficult road, but perhaps one closer to the kind of things that I think of what a human being should be doing.
0: See, this all sounds very Catholic to me. All this guilt. Yes, 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 yes. So, (laughs) so so maybe that's a good segue to 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 talking a little bit about your your youth, uh, because uh, I think there's a fascinating story there, and I think, in keeping with the nature of this discussion, uh, where I'd like to talk about the personal and some of the broader historical themes simultaneously, and see if we can navigate between the two. Maybe you can talk about uh, your, your youth and certainly mention your, uh, the, the Catholic upbringing that you had and the effects that it seems to have clearly demonstrated. Yes, I,
1: I call it the, the Buñuel syndrome. Uh, Buñuel, the famous, uh, he's actually a Spaniard who made films in France and in Mexico, Luis Buñuel, who did things like Belle du Jour. So Luis Buñuel is, of course, an anti-clerical and an atheist, but he could not help making films about religion all the time. So I call it the Buñuel effect, that you you don't like it, you are against it, but you you cannot... You are born and brought up and grow up into this web of significance, which is what you are. It is a kind of Gersian model. I grew up uh, in Cuba from a Spanish-Castilian family. So we were a bit of outsiders in, in our society because we still had ties to Spain and the family went back and forth between Spain and Cuba. I grew up across the street from Hemingway. Really? So, yeah, yeah. I could show you a, a dedication from the Old Man and the Sea. Uh, I spent a great deal of my youth in Hemingway's farm uh, yeah, and uh, I spent a great deal of my youth laying on top of a stone table, which was on the very edge of Hemingway's farm, uh, next to a farm uh, of some another American called Steinhardt, who was called a stinger in Cuba, and who was a man who owned the trolleys uh, in in Cuba in the 1940s and 50s. And um, so I didn't understand who Hemingway was, but you know, I was part of a kind of a large retinue. But, but I knew that he wrote, wrote books, books presumably. presumably. Yes, I did. The truth of the matter is that I did not like his writings at all. I found it very sparse, very well. It is. It is it's very sparse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I and of course I read it in translation, in the Spanish. And, sparse in English too. And yeah, you know, <laughs> well, I have read it in English <laughs> since then, but. And in fact, I used one of his uh, books in my class in Paris, which is Immovable Feast. Sure. Because th- that is a book I really like, because it's a kind well, it's of... It's quite a me- different book. It's a memoir. That, right? It's a memoir. Yeah. It's, a, it's an invocation of being in Paris in the 1920s. So what I was reading is really French romances, also Walter Scott in translation, and uh, which is a very different way of writing and a very different way of seeing the world. So I was... Very much taken by that, but also by the fact that, as strange as it may seem, I went to a Catholic college, I'm not, a high school, and uh, I grew up with a a kind of uh, radical interpretation of the world that really was first, uh, in a sense, nurtured, in reading people like St. Francis of Assisi and others. Mm. And then the revolution came, and the revolution was uh, another form of religion. And I recall vividly in 1959 when I was essentially 16 years old. But 16 year old in Cuba in the 1950s is very different from today. 16 today where adolescents does not end until 62 or 63, you know. <laughs> uh, Is that the upper limit now, 62 or <laughs> <laughs> It used to be 55, <laughs> but <laughs> okay. since invention of Twitter, it has <laughs> gone to 62. Um, the So it, it there, there was, on the social level, and of course the Catholic Church has been extremely reactionary, sure. but Catholic thought on questions of, property and poverty and the like can be also very radical and very well Francis of Assisi, as yeah, you said. yes. That, uh, or the new Pope named Francis uh, peculiarly. Or 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 in the you know the aspects of the gospel that richness is a form of, of sinfulness and the rich man will not be admitted into heaven. Mm. So uh, so in a sense, the, the, the aims of the revolution, that first glorious year, which was, uh, you know, one, one felt enormous and very large, uh, was was a kind of very significant and important transformation in my life. Um, I have a very ambivalent uh, attitude towards the Cuban Revolution, to what became, sure. uh, but, but it is always ambivalent. It has never been partisan one way or the other, because, and I did not go back to Cuba for 51 years, and I went back two years ago. Okay, well,
0: I'd love, I'd love to get to that, but, yeah. but, but let's go back, so you're 60, yeah.
1: the revolution breaks. Uh, revolution, revolution right. I have been active in some uh, kind of anti-Batista movements right. in my hometown, right. something very minor, carrying pamphlets here and there, right. Painting walls. Right.
0: Uh, what, what was your parents' response to all my, this? My, my parents story.
1: were very much against uh, Batista, okay. so they they were completely uh, right. So there was no like,
0: rebellion against your parents.
1: Or no, 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 no. I, I had a you know strangely enough, uh, extraordinarily spoiled life. As I was growing up, sure. uh, my father was a very erudite human being. He was a lawyer but he should have been an erudite lawyer well oh, that has, it, very well in, in, I mean, in Latin though. America yes yeah. <laughs> uh, doctors and lawyers read things other than he actually hated the law and he was a terrible lawyer because he had sure. no interest in it
0: he wanted to do higher things
1: he know he wanted to he read widely on on a kind of uh, things which were also part and parcel of the culture of Latin America in the 50s that did not look to Spain at all because of course the Franco years but also because he looked to France or to Germany so he was very fond of Goethe so in translation uh, he read I was reading Hermann Hesse before I came here before Hermann Hesse became a kind of uh, idol of the 1960s Um, so I'm reading Siddhartha or the you know the the voyage to the east and the, the Magister Ludi, the big game in Cuba, in Spanish before. Uh, he was also very interested in, uh, in the French poets of the 19th century, Verlaine. Right. So I, I, I picked this up. as a, But it was not that he was unique in that, but it was a shared culture. And one of the things that I remember very fondly is that um, he did not work uh, every day of the week. The family had also property and and, and a factory that made uh, preserves from tropical fruits. Mm -hmm. But whenever he went to La Habana, I often accompanied him, and there was a a literary tertulia, a kind of gathering of of writers, including one of the best Cuban writers ever, Lesama Lima. Mm -hmm. And I sat there, and we were waiting for the last arrival from Paris. Camus had a very tremendous impact on my life very early on, which I read. So uh, I came, I was reading The Rebel Man, or The Myth of Sisyphus, Mm -hmm. as I grew up into my late teens and uh, was influenced not only by that, but also by Camus' own life and commitments. Mm -hmm. Although I learned later that he was not a supporter of uh, independence for Algeria.
0: But, but so anyway, so, so, so moving, moving back, so you're, uh, you come from this uh, privileged, cultural, intellectually dynamic background. Um, you're reading romantic poetry, you're, you have romantic ideas, you're reading a wide variety of things as it happens, um, and you're growing up in, in the revolution, in your formative years in the revolution, and, and, and then what happens?
1: Then what happened was that for reasons which were not ideological, um, and which did not really... Uh, was a reaction to the revolution affecting the economics of well-being of my family. Uh, a friend was killed in a, in a bar uh, over a prostitute by a member of the rebel army, and there was no... Uh, this man was not brought to trial, and a group of us sort of resigned revolution which is something you do not do. You cannot resign revolutions. You are for them or against them. I became involved with, uh, uh, with a group that uh, had been part of the revolution. In fact, the leader was somebody who had been a minister in the first Castro government, Emmanuel Rey. And uh, so I became more involved. I ended up imprisoned. Uh, around the time of the Bay of Pigs, and I was imprisoned for. For,
0: for trying to leave the revolution or for no, having brought, trying to bring criminal action no, against this guy? No, or
1: what, no, what happened was that uh, a day, two days before the uh, the Bay of Pigs, right. there was a huge sabotage in La Habana. Uh, the, the main store, the main department store in La Habana, which was called El Encanto, um, and today is a park. Uh, was burned to the ground. And most of the people who were engaged in, and I should call it what they really were, anti-revolutionary activities, even though we thought of ourselves as the true revolutionaries, but we were not really. Uh, I knew about this event. I had no part in it. But and we didn't know about the Bay of Pigs, which was essentially a CIA coup sure. uh, which caught people by complete surprise and which actually wrecked the resistance to Castro regime that came from the left. It's a very complicated story. Well, but it's a sort
0: of irony that you might expect, yeah. actually.
1: So the Cuban uh, government was incredibly active in eliminating from the street anyone that they thought could lead to trouble. So. They pick up. By the 17th of April, I was already in prison. By the 17th of April, because of the the preventive custody of people, they took over 100,000 people in La Habana alone into prisons. So the prisons became sort of overburdened with people. Now this is a world before computers. Uh, They didn't know who was there and they began to release people slowly. I came out and I came out with hepatitis, which I contracted from eating spoiled food, and then t- I was taking again t- for two days for questioning, and I think then the time to leave was arrived. Sure. Um, at the beginning, I couldn't go back to Cuba. How did you uh, leave, by the way? How did you, how, the, the What was the story with leaving? The, the government let people out from time to time. Okay, so you so you, yeah.
0: you didn't have to do anything no, heroic to, no. to, to actually okay. No.
1: My family was to, to sort of thinking of uh, an embassy uh, to, you, you could get asylum in embassies and so on, and the Brazilian embassy was the place to go. Okay. So this is part of the, uh, and then I, I came to Florida, which to me was, uh, to Miami, which to me was, uh, a, a ex- I was detained in Florida, in Miami, and I went sent to Opalaca because somebody had accused me of being a communist, so I had a a kind of a few days in a detention center in Opaloka, which was a, an Air Force base.
0: So you got to sample the two detention centers of two different regimes, yes. as it yeah, were. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. And, uh And then uh, I sort of had a very accidental, I, I had a very sort of a strange life because... See, this part I, I
0: knew uh, in Gross, and then... The next thing I find out on Wikipedia or whatever is that you get your PhD from Princeton in 74. And so this is, there's a fairly large gap Well, first here.
1: of all, the Wikipedia is not I, it's not my page. Somebody invented that. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. maybe it's all wrong. I don't <laughs> no, know. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do not know because I have never seen it. But somebody <laughs> somebody put these things up there. Uh, one of the things that happened is that I arrived in Miami. I hated Miami, which was crawling with Batista followers, mm-hmm. the, the old guard from Batista and for whom arriving in 61, which is when I arrived in October of 61, we were all the communists who have remained there so long without realizing. So um, I had a job painting a hotel, a Hotel Casablanca on 66 and Collins Avenue. It was seven days a week, uh, 90 cents an hour. If you don't come on Monday, you don't come on Tuesday because you, know, you, you, you couldn't have, a, it lasted 21 days. Uh, Then I went and worked in a sort of a sugar mill in the center of the state. And then I realized that this was absolutely no life. And a very adventurous cousin, uh, a young woman, who was actually not my cousin, but a cousin of a cousin, decided that she wanted to drive to New York. And in March of '62, we came to New York. Uh, We arrived in New York with no money uh, because we were caught by a huge snowstorm on Route 1 around North Carolina. The first time I have seen a snow, and I jump out of the car and begin to cover myself with the snow, and they're almost frozen to death. <laughs> it was, and the car had no, um, what, uh, spark. no, no, no. The car has no, it's something that, that allows for the heat and so on, so we couldn't turn off the, the car, otherwise it will freeze the block. Oh. Uh,
0: no internal heating, you know?
1: No, nothing, nothing. We put ourselves paper inside our clothing and things like that. Mm-hmm. We arrived in New York. I always remember this 15th of March. Uh, the city was magical, filled with people. And, and we slept in the metro the first night in the subway because we didn't have. And then the next day, I went to someone who was a relative of or one of my relatives, but I didn't know him. And we said, We are here, my cousin and I. and. We need a place to stay and we need your work. And so he lent us some money. We rented, because a male cousin of mine had come with me as well. We rented a a little room in a house on 138 and Broadway. And uh, I began to work at Woolworth, second floor of Woolworth, uh, uh, which was then a cafeteria right across from Macy's and I was first uh, dishwasher and then a busboy and then.
0: You must not have had any English when you first landed. I thought
1: I did. I have taken English in Cuba, although I took French mostly. But I taken English in Cuba, but when I arrived, I couldn't understand a word and I couldn't communicate. And I realized why, because when my teacher arrived in New York, I went to pick him up and I had to translate for him, so. You know, <laughs> you know, learning a language elsewhere is a, is a problem. And so I... Uh, so you, know, you worked in Woolworth. I worked in Woolworth. Then I uh, moved to Continental Can Company. I was thinking about that the other day. So it was a factory. We, we made cans. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was a very good job. Those, those were the days when blue-collar, you know, made very good salaries and... All the people who worked there, who were, most of them, Hungarian refugees from 1956, oh, right, right. Uh, and trained, you know, high-skilled uh, labor. They all had houses in Long Island and hmm. two cars. And, and it, it was a very different world. So it was a very good job. I then, in '62, went into the army. This <laughs> is true. I can show you. Somebody should write this. Because in before the missile crisis, uh, and I was active with Cuban groups who wanted to go back to Cuba and things like that, and uh, we were told uh, very clearly that there was a unit that was being organized within the U.S. Army for a possible invasion of Cuba. So on 12 October of 1962, which is Columbus Day, uh, an office opened on 53rd and Lexington. I remember that I. I went there, then I went to downtown Manhattan, where there was an army station then, and we were flown to Fort Knox the following day. The first unit was 250 Cubans. It eventually grew up to 5,000, and we were to be landed in Cuba. This was Bay of Pigs too. uh, This this was the missile crisis. The idea was to give them legitimacy, that we are going to land this group of Cubans who we are going to declare themselves a Republican arms to allow the Americans to intervene. I have all the documentation upstairs. You can see this. Somebody cool. should really write this. Uh, after they settled in what was uh, a kind of agreement in which Khrushchev pulled out the missiles from Cuba in return for which the American government guarantee the survival of Castro, we were told, look, uh, Mm, that's it. We, we are not going in. Of course, we would all have been killed. We wear cannon fodder very easily. It's the kind of things that only young people can do when they are stupid enough to do these kind of things. And uh, I spent six months in the army. I, I, I have... VI uh, Bill of Rights and I, I got money to go to, sc- to college and
0: what, what was your citizenship status? How did that work when you when you first came
1: when I came in right? I came essentially as an illegal So I was Parole I had a parole from the United States since I did not have a visa to enter the United States uh, And I have come not necessarily legally into the United States. So the American government extended uh, conditions to the Cubans, which I find very unjust, in that Cubans who arrived in the United States were all giving a special status right. of parolee uh, in order to, for political, for political reasons. Right. Yeah.
0: So that part I, I know as, yeah. as, as a government policy, but yeah. then, then somehow to suddenly get, be able to go into the army.
1: From well, I, I was in the army, and I, I should go upstairs and show you this, our dog tags and our number and registration numbers were different from, we're from US, uh-huh. which is uh, the kind of uh, uh, when people were conscripted into the army or RA, which was a regular army. I was was UC, and uh, it was very clear that we were going to be sent in as a kind of vanguard and be followed, which was the idea. Of Bay of Pigs, right. uh, except that it didn't work. It, it, it was a runaround. Well, the, 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 the president really did not know this. I actually know a great deal about that because my professor at Princeton, a man who I truly love and one of my academic fathers, uh, was also in the old tradition somebody who consulted uh, for foreign policy. And according to him, and I had him on tape, he was at the Oval Office when. Bay of Pigs went down, and Kennedy was very undecided on what to do. And Adelaide Stevenson was the one who said, No, this, this, you cannot do, you cannot go in. This, I will ruin you if you do this. And he pulled out. In any case, I, I came out of the army in April of uh, 1963, went back to my job, uh, became active in kind of counter-revolutionary activities, training myself to be infiltrated into Cuba. Um, pick up uh, somebody who I was uh, the daughter of the well-to-do family near my hometown. And uh, I said, well, if I am not in Cuba, by 20th of May of 1964, we will marry. And uh, strangely enough, the man who was the leader of the group that I was part was caught in the Bahamas, gambling the money away that we have collected, and so that was the end of my revolutionary <laughs> years. You know, marriage, and then I went back to school. I went to City College while still working in the factory. I okay, well,
0: but so at, at this point you had decided. To
1: this is becoming a biographical uh, essay. It wasn't,
0: here. Wha- that's fine. This is yeah. the way these things work. You, you, I don't don't have anything there. It's yeah. a fascinating story. So. So, deciding to, go to, uh, deciding to go to City College uh, just came out of the blue? You had been doing all these different things? I or were you thinking, I'm, I'm frustrated, I want a life of the mind now? How, how does this...
1: Well, you know, I, I had expectations, intellectual expectations, and the sure. factory work was very good. I could read while I work, and...
0: Well, you were happy. So, you didn't feel stultified so much when you n- were doing
1: that. No, but I, but I figured that I wanted to go on and learn. Right. No, it was fun I put gorilla theater it was the very beginning of uh, of uh, Vietnam years, and we did gorilla theater in the in the bathroom during the coffee the, you know during the smoke breaks if you <laughs> remember there was a smoke breaks then and uh, and you know we listened to Bob Dylan and it was just... Sure. Well, that uh, was, that part's normal so yeah, okay. so I had gone to city college when I arrived in New York to take English as a second language and I was not ready uh, emotionally or any anything else to go so it, I quit and then I went back after I married so I married in 64 in June of 64 and that September I went back to school and I did fairly well mostly because I had a very substantial, Training and education sure. that I have received in Cuba.
0: And did you study Spanish history at the time, or did no, you study no, history no, in general, no. or what sorts
1: of things did you? Did you but study? you see, I, I I always talk about serendipity, and I have said this in a kind of intellectual autobiography. I wanted to I, I wanted to teach. That's what I wanted to do. My I come from a family of teachers. All my aunts, nine of them, nine. were teachers, and so I thought. I never thought of becoming a scholar or writing books or anything like that. So I wanted to be a teacher. And I took a history major, but it could have been also a philosophy major. In fact, I had a philosophy minor.
0: It was a means to an end to become a teacher.
1: But it's also that it was obviously in the humanities. Mm -hmm. I clearly was not very good in math or anything like that. And like many other people, I have been, in a sense, enchanted by an instructor. and. who was doing something in the Middle Ages. And I read a textbook by Joseph Estrella. So that's what I was going to do.
0: This was the gentleman who became your supervisor at, at Princeton, right? That is correct, And, and what, one just side question. This was the guy who's advising Kennedy? What is a medievalist he, doing advising Kennedy? Is he, this the same guy? Am I, yes, am I follow yes. the story No, correctly? no,
1: no, yes, you had it correct. Joseph Estrella uh, was a member of the Princeton, famous Princeton class of 1925, 1926, when the Dollars brothers, were at Princeton, Allen and Foster Dollars. Mm-hmm. And in 1939, the Dollars organized the OSSS, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, the CIA predecessor, okay. the kind of intelligence right. uh, system. And they, they drew upon uh, kind of a scholars who were part of that Princeton group I see. as consultants for. I see for this unit during world war II, and then when it became the CIA for the CIA and you know Alan Dulles ran the CIA for many many years and there was this Princeton connection which went back to the class reunions every year in which all this operative met to so discuss and came to washington to to provide advice and which you know in the seven, in the 70s and 80s, we all disliked this immensely and fought against it because it was a kind of meretricious service to the government. But in retrospect, those were very innocent years because I think that this country could have benefited from having some historians tell their president, uh, (laughs) don't get into this place, (laughs) you're going to get a lot of trouble here. I just can't yeah.
0: imagine George W. Bush being, being advised by a medievalist. but uh, Well, maybe yeah. not. Crusades, you know.
1: So anyway, yeah. that's it. In any case, uh, I, so I went to city. I did very well. I continued to work. So I, I worked during the day and went to school in the evenings. I either took the metro, or the subway to city college, uh, which to me remains one of those uh, golden ideals. At that time, it was free. I went to school for free in this country. City was free. It was incredibly uh, nurturing. I had, all my teachers were mostly German refugees who had landed at the City University. The classes were very small. Uh, It it was a a tremendous experience, a very positive, wonderful experience. And I was caught up into this. So I went and and talked to someone who taught part-time but who was the head of the social science department at Washington Urban High School in Union Square. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to teach in uh, primary or secondary school. And he turned and said, with that accent, impossible. You should go and get a degree and teach in college where it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so that's how we ended up applying for uh, I applied to Princeton, did not get in, went to NYU for an MA for a year and then I pre-applied to Princeton, and got in. And Princeton was also a, a kind of, by the way, I also, when I entered NYU, which was a more demanding thing than the, the BA, I quit my job and became both a superintendent in a building in Astoria, Queens, and a cab driver four times a week. So I drove a cab in New York in 1969, Next, 69 to 70. I drove a cab from September to when I went to Princeton in late August.
0: Wow, so you had educations across the board. Yeah, and I had a
1: wonderful experience as a cab driver. I was tremendous experiences, positive ones, most of it. So I went to Princeton, and I uh, did my degree very quickly. I wanted to be a French historian I, because of my French mm-hmm. Election. And because Estreyer was also a French medievalist. Mm-hmm. But when the time came to, to do my research, I had a wife and two kids, and not enough money to live in Paris, so I went to Spain, which was cheaper.
0: Wow, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that d- so, so this has filled in an awful lot of gaps <laughs> for me. <laughs> And and um, but you, of course you've kept a French connection, but we'll we'll at least spiritually uh, um, if, and and professionally as well. But we'll 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 get to that. Um, so let, let's move to some of your work um, in medieval history and Spanish history, and much of it, of course, cuts across uh, all sorts of nationalistic um, boundaries. And you talked about uh, the witchcraft. As, as a course for the, mm, the great yeah. courses and the courses that you've taught and so forth. Um, and I, I wanna tie this to the other strand which is this objective notion of how people respond to historical events or, or uh, perhaps broad themes in history if I can impose some external structure mm-hmm. and, and some of the, the power structures that are associated with that because you allude to that in your book as well. Um, one of the things that you mention when you talk about uh, witchcraft and you talk about major societal movements that, that are, at least are influenced by religion or apocalyptic movements and so forth, um, is the, the curious juxtaposition of how some of the most barbaric, closed-minded, superstitious movements can arise in tandem with what we now consider to be foundational movements in the Enlightenment and Renaissance and 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 developed thinking. So how is that possible, first of all? How is it possible that these things have have, have happened simultaneously? Well, I
1: I think that uh, Walter Benjamin's statement that there is no monument of civilization that is also not a monument of barbarity speaks to the fact that high culture, the Renaissance, the scientific revolution, is built upon the shoulders of the many who toil in ignorance and so on, and that many of these movements are also in a very functionalist way. I, I, I don't particularly subscribe completely to that. But there are, there are ways in which you can channel, I mean, this is, again, not original. De Lumo said that long ago, is that you can channel a great deal of the anxieties of a society into these persecutory uh, stages. Um, I began my career as a historian, as an institutional historian. I was trained by Joseph Reyer, and you know we wanted to know about the administration of France under Philip IV, end of the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century. That's what we learned. And my first work was essentially in that vein about Burgos and so on. But I have two kind of, actually, I would say three great. Uh, influences, later influences in my life, which do not erase what I learned from Joseph Estrella, who was an extremely nurturing uh, advisor. I am here because he allowed me all kinds of mistakes and supported me. And he, he was extraordinarily kind to, to me and to some of the other graduate students. But at Princeton at that time, we're talking about the early 1970s, and I remained in Princeton when I began to teach at Brooklyn College because, because I had an intellectual community at Princeton, there was a fabled uh, English historian, Lawrence Stone, who was one of the most, uh, how should I say it, eclectic historians you can think of. He immediately grafted into any new movement that will develop. Yeah. So these are the years in which social history was waxing very, very strongly. And at Princeton, there is a seminar which still runs, which called the Davis Center Seminar, which Lawrence, ran, Lawrence Stone ran for 20 years. Those places were places of extreme kind of intellectual struggle and, and, and a strife because, because he did not take fools very kindly. So everything was contested there. I learned a lot about a very different kind of history. Lawrence Stone was a member of the editorial board of Past and Present, so was John Eliot, so is John Eliot, and that was a kind of neo masters social history best exemplified not only by the work of Lawrence but the work of people like Rodney Hilton, was it
0: Eric
1: Cobson, Hobsbawm. Hobsbawm, sorry, I, I only read these things. Yeah. No, no, Hobsbawm, who yeah. you know. So it, it, it was very exciting. And I began to move in that direction, so that's one aspect. Two, that I served as a TA, as an as a graduate student, but then also when I was already teaching at Brooklyn, to Karl Shorsky, who was and is he's still alive although very very old, uh, the best teacher I have ever seen in my life. Yeah. So a great deal of my teaching, something that I love to do. I, I you know people ask me what do you do. I never say I write books. I say I'm a teacher. This is this is what I love to do. I'm coming to the end of it, but I, I love still to do it. And Karl Chomsky Carl was the best teacher. So what
0: made him so fantastic? Is well, you
1: he, 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 I, I, can, I don't teach like him, but he was incredibly keen on teaching undergraduates. And it was a performance. You know, he had music behind him and images. And, and it was so elegant and beautiful that you were utterly seduced by it. By this, and then, for a very complicated set of, of, of reasons, by the end of the 70s, I became very close to Jacques Le Goff, a very famous French medievalist who passed away this Monday. Yes, you had mentioned. Uh, so, uh, to me, is one, two, or three sort of intellectual fathers that have now disappeared, and. I was invited to France, and I went three times to run a seminar there in January, and I also sat in his seminar. And he was the proponent of a kind of anthropological, social, cultural history that saw how my work shifted uh, in that direction as well, without ever ceasing to be a social historian. so my own way of doing history has been progressing over time. Right. But the question that you ask is, how do you have periods in which you have all this incredible cultural production accompanied by extreme uh, persecutions of people? And I, I find that very much the pattern of historical development. We always like to think of the Greeks as creating this world of uh, measures and not, non, no, nothing in excess and know thyself. But these are the same Greeks who practice forms of misogyny which were extreme, who were a slave holding society, mm. who engage in t- brutal kind of colonial practices and imperialism. You know, these are the, these are the, the same Athenians who Exterminate people who resist them. The, the you know, the the, the, the debate on t- and which is in th- and found in two this the yeah. Peloponnesian wars, which is which is absolute crude demonstration of uh, of the ex- this exercise of power.
0: It's well, quite a ringing indictment of democracy. Yes, yes, we know yes it as well.
1: Yes, indeed, indeed, oh. and and uh, also. Uh, had, uh, you know, most of the population lived, uh, were a slave, living in absolutely abysmal conditions, working in the silver mines. Uh, uh, which
0: and, and you mentioned this as well, because isn't there some, there seems to be some distortion over history, because we, we pick out the best the, things. the best people. We pick out the, the, the elevated, the cultured, the, the eloquent uh, and that's natural, of course. You you look for Plato stands out, Aristotle stands out, Aristophanes stands out, and so forth. But the that's not necessarily indicative of the great masses of uh, of the people who lived at the time, or their policies, or or their persecutions, or any of these things.
1: So perhaps the, the this is uh, a very complicated historical question. Is it whether? Uh, with some exceptions, and there are some exceptions to this, kind of great cultural achievements are built upon the the toil and the sacrifices and the anguish of the many. I think today in the world, I put things on my door, for example, the growing level of inequality in the world. Um, there are a few societies that have fairly good uh, amount of of equality, and good education, and good health systems. We know which ones they are. They are the Scandinavian societies. But of course, they also are not uh, welcoming of outsiders, and uh, they are very homogeneous, and they have a level of prosperity and well-being, which is certainly not matched by the world. And I was in lecturing in Spain, and while I was there, we saw this uh, event on television in which uh, sub-Saharan Africans come across the Sahara and then mass in little woods outside the fences of Melilla, which is a Spanish enclave in North Africa. Right. And then when the moment is ripe, when scale the fence they something? try to scale the fence, right. thousands of them, only 500 make it, and they, they make it on the other side. and. And they kiss the ground and they say victory, victory, even though they have gotten just to a place where they are being held. That's happening at Lampedusa, the island of Sicily, Mineo in Sicily and so on. And the 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 discourse that I hear in the among my friends, people who I think very highly of, is highly anti-immigrant. You know, these people are destroying the world. Well, But this is the point, isn't it? Why will one migrate? In most cases, one migrates because one's life is almost unbearable. Until we sort of equal or level the playing field, people will continue to migrate. Is there any
0: sense of people, in your experience, learning from history? I mean, it seems that you're well qualified to comment on this for all sorts of reasons, not least of which the fact that you're professional historian, but you're also someone who cares very passionately about political events, about current events, about teaching, about um, the, the, the general prevailing sociological winds. Um, one uh, one particular view of why people should study history is this Santayana view that, uh, no. that uh, if you don't, uh, no. you, you get to constantly repeat the mistakes that you've made before, but that's not um, I, I'd like you to comment on that, but there have been people from Thucydides on down who've talked about why it's very important to document things the Thucydides was going on, of course, as you know about, well, I'm gonna tell you the symptoms of this particular plague and yes, disease yes. so that you can identify it later on. Yeah. And so, there, are we learning from history? Is it, is it folly to even imagine learning from history?
1: I think we learn from history. Otherwise, what am I doing here, right? I should be teaching science fiction or something like that. Right. I think we learn from history. I do not think that if we don't learn from history we're going to repeat the same mistakes. Although there are patterns, history never repeats itself. Sure. It's always very different. The context is always changing. There are things that are similar.
0: But isn't that really what he meant? Isn't that more metaphorical? Yeah. I and mean, he probably didn't mean repeat exactly the same. Yes, thing. but
1: but but essentially what it is is that we don't always learn enough to avoid the mistakes because individual who learns history or... But I think that this summer I was uh, uh, teaching in Paris and as always I went to visit Jacques Le Goff for lunch and I am teaching a class online. which makes me feel like a traitor to my students, but, uh, but the one I was talking about, about a question of accessibility, and my students were reading a, a, an article by Jacques Le Goff which is it's a very famous piece on church time and merchant's time, in which he talks about the manner in which the clock is invented and people begin to think of time no longer belonging to God, but belonging to something that you can make money out of it.
0: They can possess it themselves somehow.
1: So I asked him, would you say something to my class? And so he's very eloquently, I'm sorry my wife is not here because she could show you the video that we have. Uh, He said, I will begin with a painting by Gauguin and The painting's title, which is in Ohio, in a museum, is who are we, where we come from, and where are we going? And he said, these are the history, the questions that history can answer. And I think it is important uh, to, in a sense, think historically. Not only because we may avoid some mistakes if we know the history. Not that we are going to repeat the mistake, but we could avoid some mistakes. But it's also because we, we as, as human beings, are deeply bound by historical processes, even if we never understand them as such, or even care about history. Because history is now thought out, I could see it among my students who are coming from high school, as a memorization of certain dates. Rather than understanding the historical processes that lead to a witch craze in the midst of a renaissance or, or to Bacchanalias in, in Athens in the midst of the most amazing philosophical outpouring. So I think that if we want to know who we are and, and where we are going and, and where we come from and, and so on, we have to, in a sense, know history, as, as not as a science, but as a humanistic discipline. I think that there's something beyond that. And that is that without humanities, without history and literature and so on, we cannot be, in a sense, full citizens. Citizenship requires a kind of understanding of issues. You see it, how in the political processes in this country or in other countries, the truth is continuously distorted the past is continuously reinvented. I also, you know, it's remade. If you, I have always been so moved by George Orwell 1984, because it is absolutely true, the past is always malleable. And I tell that to my students. The past that you're learning here in this class is my perception of my, but we must learn about different interpretations of the past if we want to sort out in a sense how we are going to be full members of a democratic community, whatever that is.
0: So it's this idea that one has to be continually engaging. I mean, there there, there are a bunch of points that you're, you're putting in terms of uh, looking at other perspectives. There's also the sense of, uh, constantly digging deeper, having responsibility oneself for for investigating things, being aware of things, making sure that you're not duped and so forth by by authorities. You said something which was a bit intriguing when you said it's just one perspective. I mean, uh, uh, of course it's your perspective and your research, but I'm guessing you believe as a historian, if not in some objective truth with a capital T, there are events that, 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 that have happened, they may be interpreted differently, but I mean, it's not all, we're not talking widespread relativism here, presumably, right? I mean, there has to be some
1: sense of... Well, the, I had this discussion with my students on Tuesday. I'm teaching a sophomore seminar, and they were very... So a adam- sophomore question, so I apologize for that. <laughs> No, 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 at all, not at all. It's a very good question. The truth of the matter is this. Uh, we know, we know for a fact that the history we learned... When we look at documents of the past, when I look at a document, when I look at a document in the Municipal Archive of Burgos, the first research I did, I spent a lot of months there looking at documents. But let's dig deeper into that. Who wrote the documents? For what purpose are these documents written? The documents that allow us to see the past are mediated by such things as learning how to write in a society in which the majority of the people do not write. It is also, most of these documents are either administrative documents or having to do with transfers of property. It, in a sense, it buttresses. It provides, should we say it, a written, a, a, a written garment to something very specific, right. which is the nature of, of, of owning things of relationships of power, of s- social distinctions. And so how are we to see the past when the material that allow us to see the past is clouded by by these structures?
0: Well, constant investigation, perhaps, yeah. of these structures, so constant reappraisals, can, constant...
1: On the other hand, I I am a historian. I mean, this is the great challenge that postmodern Theory posed for historians if, every, if if language is unstable how could you know anything that happened in the past so as a historian I said no no there's something you can know but no well-trained historian today will look at the past in the same fashion that we did 30 years ago sure we, we will be more critical of our sources we will try to find alternate points of views and things like that so I I tell but that but you,
0: can, you can marry these two things, obviously, and, and you do. I mean, that's almost an argument for why we have to keep training historians, because 30 years hence, there will be historians that will look at the world differently from, from the way we look absolutely, at the world today. Absolutely.
1: Every 10 years, we rewrite the past. Unfortunately, the number of historians will be less. Not only here, but in France and in Spain and so on, because all the departments of history are contracting in this country, with the exception of some extremely wealthy places that can afford to have them. Uh, less graduate students have been admitted to history programs. The, there is a defunding of the humanities and the social sciences that is going on here and elsewhere in the Western world. Languages have been eliminated from the curriculum, except for a few languages, such as Spanish and Chinese. and. Arabic, one because the realities of living in this country, the other because of the economic power of China, and the other one for strategic reasons.
0: Economic power of China? What does that, what does that have <laughs> to do with anything?
1: Well, people like to want to learn Chinese.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't stop them from learning other things. I mean, no... no yeah, yeah,
1: yeah no, but what I mean to say is that, for example, many departments of languages have been closed, closed down throughout the country. They are closing throughout the country. So because of China? No, 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 no. German, French, Italian, Slavic languages. Oh, because Greek. why
0: bother with these things? You should be learning Chinese, is yeah. it? Or or, or,
1: or or why bother with languages when we can use English as the only language? So I'll give you an example SUNY Albany. You know, this is one of the four research centers of the State University of New York. Yeah. SUNY Albany is a, is, a, is, a, is a massacre that has become paradigmatic, it's not exceptional. It had been happening to a lesser degree elsewhere. Uh, decided that for the sake of economy, uh, these this departments don't, didn't have a great deal of majors. They, not too many people want to learn German or French or mm. Slavic languages. So they closed down the departments of French, German, Italian, classics, complete geography. Wow. close that's down. A, that's a and the faculty let go.
0: What did they replace them with, just out of curiosity, do you know?
1: So let's say that you are a student. You send your child to study at SUNY Albany, and she wants to be a historian of France or of Germany, or there is no way in which she can learn the language, although the languages would probably be taught, but cannot learn the literature. Oh, service functions. Yes, so that essentially then she will choose to do U.S. history or Spanish history or Chinese history. Yeah. And, and this is a trend that is, you know, there's a kind of attack on the humanities and the social sciences, which is widespread throughout the Western world and in which the opportunities to enter the profession are far less than they were when I came out.
0: So I want to explore that a little bit more in the future. I want to talk about the future of history and so forth, but let's let's talk about moving back a little bit to what what we as a society can learn from history. Um, And as you were talking, I thought to myself, well, can we actually point to any concrete cases, whatever this means, on a sociological level where we can say, oh yes, we as a society appreciated this historical event. We didn't go here, and we went there instead because we we re- realized, oh, that's that way lies madness. We've done that before, is it?
1: Can well, I I, I I do not know that that we can point out directly uh, one event that that you say we didn't do this because we had suffered it in in the okay, well, past. Roughly, roughly, but 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 I I I could give you one example, which is. The great crash of uh, 1929 mm-hmm. uh, clearly caught everybody by surprise. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we came very close in 2007, mm-hmm. 2008, to something like that. A crash that was inspired by a few people at the top mm-hmm. who make huge amounts of money out of this miseries of the world. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that governments immediately reacted to the crisis and ben but,
0: Bernanke was actually a student of, the, of that
1: particular crash, as I understand yes, it. The, yes, yes, and and they didn't react perhaps in the ways in which we think they should have reacted, but nonetheless, but they, they were influenced they, by they, that, they, they, There was a, a sense that there are certain things you cannot allow. Right. You cannot allow the financial sector to collapse. You should the Chinese invested trillions of dollars in infrastructure as a way to combat the, the declining business. So. Here is an example where people's knowledge of the past and, and knowledge of the mechanics of economic change had an impact. Whether it was all that could have been done, we, we could enter into a debate about that because I think it was not enough. Uh, and it was channeled into some very specific sectors rather than other sectors. But let me give you an example. Here we have 9 mm-hmm. 11. Um, Two wars result out of that. Any historian would have told you that one, Iraq is a deeply divided sectarian society in which uh, nation building still not there. It was only held together by a savage dictator Mm -hmm. and that Bush father understood this in ways in which Bush's son did not. Bush father did not go in. Sort of, you defeat and you pull out, because there's not going to be reception committees with flowers waiting for you. In the same fashion, history could tell us that Afghanistan is a really difficult place to ever control. Alexander failed, the British failed, the Russians failed, uh, and the Americans failed too. Uh, Because if there are gains, there are very limited ones. But it is a tribal society, there is no civic society, the civil society at all. Mm -hmm. How is this a deeply religious society? How do you control this? We are going to We're going to bomb you to the Stone Age. They're already in the Stone Age. What are you going to do? There are no targets there. Mm. And Ten years of it, which have cost, what, a billion dollars every month while our infrastructure is collapsing.
0: Does history give us any guide, any more concrete guide in terms of what we might do other than... There are some real difficulties here. Alexander tried, the Russians tried, so and so forth and so on. I mean, so let me be more specific. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Afghanistan, which certainly wasn't what I had thought we'd talk about, but that's in the spirit yeah. of a free-flowing yeah. conversation. Um, from America's position, it seems, here is a country which is, which is harboring people to, to be trained and to launch terrorist activities on, on, on its soil. So uh, clearly, that issue... I'm thinking, if I'm in charge of uh, American defense policy, we have to make sure that doesn't happen again, and we have to take preventative issues. Uh, In the the meantime, we can say this is a fragmented society which is uh, oppressed by these uh, extremely retrograde, fundamentalist, uh, misogynistic loonies, Mm -hmm. and we have to, uh, as we uh, we go in and, and ensure our own safety against future terrorist attacks, we we have to somehow do our part to uh, to to contribute mm-hmm. towards the evolution of this country in a more progressive way. Yes. Notwithstanding all of these difficulties that you mentioned, um, does history give us any clearer guide in terms of what we should do other than, uh-oh, trouble, everybody tried to invade this place and didn't well, work, it didn't work in their hills and yeah, gorillas and yeah. so it's, forth? It's
1: the geopolitics of the whole thing. You know, uh, the Russians had yearned for Afghanistan for centuries. Is the access to India and to the Indian Ocean. Uh, have, this is, you know, the invasion 10 years, 10 years' invasion of Afghanistan was not something that came out of nothing. It was part of a long-term uh, Russian policy and then Soviet policy. Um, it is, there are no easy answers ever. You know, they, this is the place from where the attacks came, and the, the Al Qaeda has a sort of deeply rooted into the areas, so, so was always in the area of Pakistan. Uh, I, I am, you know, I don't have answers to this, right. but it's very clear that attempts to create a civil society, which you know, I was reading today about the number of women who are at a meeting and some women running for office, so there have been some progress. But how deep is your involvement there? How are you going to get yourself involved? After all, the Americans had long been involved in Afghanistan. Sure. They That's supported the They, they supported from, sure. they supported the Taliban yeah. against the Russians because the enemies of my enemies is my friend. So, uh, but if so we c-
0: I'm not holding a brief for American yeah. foreign policy. I'm, I'm just yeah. saying, as a historian, I'm, I'm looking for a future situation where a historian can provide valuable advice. And it seems to me the advice of, well, this is a uh, this is a, a, a potentially unconquerable country because lots of other regimes have tried to <laughs> conquer it. No, but you, it, 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 so far, it is a right?
1: potentially unconquerable country because of the fragmented nature of the society, right. not because the, the British fail or because, because it is, there is no hold. You know, the, the, the European tradition in which you can defeat an army and then the capital surrender and you're giving a key doesn't work in history. You know, that's very lovely. You, you defeat your army in the field, and then somebody comes in and gives you the keys to the city and, you know, the surrender of Breda. And there is all this courtesy. The Russians proved that twice. They will not surrender. They will suck you in, and eventually they will kill you. They did it to Napoleon. They did it to the Nazis. Yeah. You know, sort of... So there are societies in which there is no a capturing Kabul and putting a, a figurehead who is corrupt and who has all these tribal affiliations in a country that is deeply uh, fractured about by different tribal societies. I, there is a very interesting film. It's, it's, it's actually a surprising film. It's made in Israel. And I think it's called the Tank. Although I will not swear by that. Mm. And it's a film about a valley in Afghanistan where a Russian tank that has just destroyed a Pashtun village gets lost gets separated from its main column. This valley has only one exit and it becomes lost in this valley it doesn't know where to go and then the Pashtuns come out to hunt the uh, the tank it is It is a, it is a surprising film because it is also, in some respects, a film that gives you is a lens through which to look at historical processes, which are not necessarily in books, but which are about the passions that agitate humans. It is also that is made by the Israelis. And, and there is, at the end, you come out there almost as a kind of glorification of this drive of this tribal people to revenge. They couldn't care that these Russians were communists anymore, that they cared that the Americans are Democrats or are from democracy. They were in there. They were character. in my village. Right. You destroy my village, you kill my, my relatives, I'm going to come after you. And it, it's, it's really a remarkable film because the Russians themselves are ambivalent. Some are gung ho, and some are like, what are we doing here? Uh, You know, this is totally insane. Some are friendly to the to the to the Afghans or the Pashtun, and the others are not. So they have even they even have in the very traditional fashion they have a member of the Afghan army with them, you know, sort of serving as a kind of go-between interlocutor. So these are the kind of things that I do not know what the what a historian can tell a politician, that is the best way to approach dealing with Afghanistan or Iraq or, or Crimea or Ukraine or anything like that. But a historians can point out that it's not as simple, that it's not so simple, as your French friends said to you. Right. It's never simple, because if you understand the history and you understand those webs of significance, so use Gertz again, that exists there, then you, you get to see another world. Because we, we are all in our little caves and we are very different from each other. Sometimes we can go into other caves and see the other people, and but we don't fully understand them ever. And therefore, we, we have to be aware of this. And, and that's what history, in a sense, can teach us.
0: Is, there seems to be a tension listening to you between uh, immutable laws of, of humanity, as it were, and a sense of progress. Let me try to be a little bit more specific. So this whole notion of, to take your recent example, you're in my village, you've hurt my people, I'm going to get you. This is a very tribal, uh, basic response that one can imagine has been portrayed out for thousands of years, ever since there have been human tribes, This this sort of, This sense of protecting one's own, eye for an eye, you hurt me or my people, I'm going to go after you, and played out over and over again in increasing levels of geopolitical complexity or simplicity or what have you. And on the other hand, if one looks at human civilization and one takes the long view, clearly the society in which we now find ourselves is very different than than the the, societies of of 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago, for that matter. Is it... Do you find, as a professional historian, that there is this constant give and take between evaluating societies and saying, this is very different in this time and place, or this is merely the, the present version instantiation of some of these, these, these typical human characteristics? Do you go back and forth? How do you look at that?
1: You know, I, I think that each moment, each context, yields uh, or produces a very different outcome. Uh, that is essentially bound and tied to all kinds of things, which are not always easy to determine. Um, Are we the same as uh, early hominids uh, fighting for tribes and so on? I teach a class on world history from beginning to 500. And in my last class, the last, last fall, A student built a computer model in which you can see whether you will survive or become extinct by, you know, you find somebody who is suffering from um, smallpox. Do you bring it and try to cure her? Do you isolate it or do you kill it? And depending on the variables, you end up sort of reproducing or, or dying. So it's, it's not always easy because each condition varies. I, I have my very, uh, how should I say, serious doubts about the idea of progress. Are we more civilized today than we were a thousand years ago? Probably. Uh, are we, uh, have we had more technology at our hands? Probably. Uh, we, um, as, as, as a group, not as individuals, which vary immensely, as, as we, as a group, uh, more tolerant, mm, probably, but that does not mean that the human reactions to you have sort of killed somebody in my village and I have to get you, which is precisely what happened after 9-11. I was here in 9 /11, here in this house, in this apartment. The buildings across are built by the same architect who built not you, you cannot see it from there. you can see there. They are one-third the, the height of the World Trade Center, but it's the same architectural style, really. except that it's triangle instead of. I traveled to New York in one of the first flights, going back. I <laughs> went, I walked to the site. I walked back to Union Square, which was filled with um, signs. Time for peace. We must forgive. You know, We must understand the, the elements that prompted this kind of behavior and action. That did not last. Because it is so easy to manipulate this justified anger at, uh, it is so easy to forget. So we lost what three thousand plus people at the World Trade Center, and in the other uh, terrorist attacks, which is three thousand four hundred too many. But then, how many have died in in an attempt to to pay back for this? How many? Over a hundred thousand people in Iraq.
0: I think it's 100,000? Yeah.
1: More than 5,000 American soldiers have died. And we do this all the time in the 21st century. Sophisticated people we are. Mm -hmm. Enlightened people with access to all kinds of technologies and so on. It's so easy to kill someone with a drone. It's so easy to kill someone when you drop a firebomb in Hamburg you don't see the people who die. Technological progress has also made possible to carnage in ways that we are unthinkable. This is the 20th century. It's one of the most brutal centuries in the history of mankind. Sure. I cannot even think of anything that comes close to this. Beginning with the Armenian, Holocaust, genocide, the First World War, which was the relocation of the Kulaks by Stalin, the Second World War, which was even exponentially atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the fire bombing of Dresden and Hamburg, the blanket bombing of London by the Germans, the destruction of Guernica by the German as a way of testing the possibilities of this, the Cambodian massacres, the uh, Hutu and Tutsi battles in Africa. 20th century. The century that has given us television computers and cell phones. And let's not even think about the Nazi Holocaust, uh, which is a a, a chapter into itself. Hmm.
0: So... In terms of progress, (laughs) it's an open question, (laughs) to to put it mildly.
1: Yeah, in terms of progress, Nietzsche raised, raised this first. Have we progressed as humans? Are kinder, nicer? Well, probably we are, kinder and nicer, certainly to those around us. But the same person who is very kind and nice and so on will spend millions of dollars Campaigning to block immigrants from entering this country or 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 Europe, or to make sure that uh, you know people cannot marry if they are of the same gender, or that women do not have abortions, and and
0: You, you talk you talk about just being very specific. Uh, in your uh, in, in the terror of history, but also in some other books about the relationship between religion and power as well. So, uh, is this uh, and this is not uh, as you freely admit, and as uh, everybody who investigates this knows, this is this is not uh, hugely original. Many people have commented no. on this. Uh, more I people thought, who have, who have looked at this have commented on it. Uh, I mean, it's a fairly obvious yeah. uh, uh, truth. And this is all part, I think, if you take an anthropological perspective, humans form societies, there are control factors in place, religion has, has always played a role uh, in terms of uh, um, organizing, to put it uh, in rather uh, non-judgmental terms, uh, uh, societal codes, uh, events, all the rest of this sort of thing. And so it's not surprising that there is there is a link between these these things. Has that changed? Is that evolving? You've looked at this again from taking the long view. Are we now at a stage when we can say, well, yes, that's true. That religion and power have always been uh, deeply embedded, in, in but but Together. now we have we have the separation, formal separation of church and state, at least in some parts of the world. We have an understanding of the dangers there, and. We've made some kind of progress, objective progress, in terms of the uh, uh, of a detachment of these two things. Is that a fair comment, or is that actually it, it not the case? It, it
1: is. It is true that in some advanced societies, uh, religion and politics are have been severed. I, I again refer to Scandinavian societies. It is true that there are countries such as France, yeah. which is. Exceedingly secular, even though eleven percent of the population now is Muslim, and there is problems growing.
0: But it's a proudly secular society. Oh yeah, I mean, proudly they, they constantly refer to the nineteen oh five legislation and so forth. Yeah, and, and it's,
1: it's clear that in places like England, the church has lost all of its relevance, even though there are fundamentalist groups among Muslim inhabitants of England. So it, 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 is, it is clear that in some places, the role of religion has diminished. There are other places where religion plays a significant role in terms of politics. The United States is an example of this. And yet, there are developments that are inconceivable and impossible to, pre- to have been predicted by historians. For example, attitude towards homosexuality or in this society has dramatically been transformed in a period of 10 years. I mean, why, how how does this happen? It's it's really, politicians ran on an anti-homosexual platform right. 12 years ago. Right. And now suddenly, no gives a hoot about this except for some crazies.
0: Right. Drug, saw, marijuana legalization as well, I didn't see that one coming.
1: I yeah, guess. i I like, <laughs> well, hello, how did this happen? My goodness! Like nobody cares. So, so that there are social issues that that have moved very quickly into the where others are not: Uh, immigration, religion. This is a deeply religious country. At least half of it is deeply religious. But I, I actually truly believe that the great enemies of mankind are nationalism and religion, and that most wars have been fought either by people who argue my country needs to expand or is better than right. yours, or by people who said you are not of my own religion and therefore I have the right to kill you. Or both. Or both, and often both. Mm. Uh, you know, in World War One, uh, the German bishops prayed to God for a German victory, and the French bishops prayed to God for a French victory. So, uh,
0: but is there? Pro- I mean, so uh, the way I look at it, let, let me let me just posit my view, and you, and you can react. I certainly see that uh, humans are these unmasked, uh, these these very selfish, retributive, uh, horrible uh, beings that, that act uh, in, in very uh, in, in very horrific ways towards one another. But. Um, but there are some things that do seem to have changed for the better on a sociological level. By and I'm large, we now, most, most Western countries, many countries around the world are democracies more or less. Uh, there is an opportunity for most people to at least express themselves. There is perhaps even more significantly an opportunity for power to change, so you don't get this entrenched sense no. of power in oligarchies. You don't have these unelected uh, religious bodies playing this, yeah. the formative role that they used to play in terms of guiding societies and guiding policies. Um, so I, I don't look at myself as a wide-eyed optimist by and large, but but if I look back, you're a medieval historian. If I, if I ask myself, would I rather live in medieval times or would I rather live now, I don't have a whole uh, long
1: decision to, <laughs> to, make. to no, make. No, no, I, I tell my students, don't glorify the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages was a terrible period. Most people die at a... Very early and lived very miserable lives. Only very few at the top lived somewhat acceptable lives, and that was not very good either.
0: Right. So mm-hmm. I don't want to glorify the. the I, I don't want to glorify no. the past, and but I, and I don't want to think, oh, we're living in this wonderful age now. But I do think there is some, some sense of progress. There, there, there
1: is some sense of progress. I, I you know, again, I, even though I always refer to human kindness and things like that, the reality is that. There are many societies around the world that live fairly, you know the quality of life is very good. People get educated and people get health insurance in most civilized countries that uh, they have political participation. Uh, there is a redistribution of wealth in some countries and not in others. Uh, however, uh, having said that, uh, the developments that really uh, date to this crisis, but which have been growing for a long time, is, um, is alarming because one of the things that is very obvious is the growing inequality right. between social classes. And on 12 March, uh, in the New York Times business section, there is a review of a book written by a Frenchman uh, of all things, in which he looks at all the economic data for 100 years. And the final kind of outcome to this is that uh, inequality is growing rather than decreasing.
0: This is globally, presumably. Globally, globally. It's certainly globally. growing here. Yeah, it's growing growing. In many other countries.
1: and in other countries as well. It's, it's uh, that democracy's great uh, promise was that they were going to in a sense, level the playing field. And that—that that is not true. And you know, I do not know, I have not read the book, I do not know what kind of evidence, but the, I found the article, in fact, I took it with me, I was leaving that morning for Spain, and I broke it with me, and I have it in my office, and I'm going to cut it and put it on my door. Because, because it's a very alarming uh, situation. Uh, will the world in which I grew up exist? In the next ten, fifteen, twenty years, I am perhaps a little bit of a pessimist in this, but i, I don 't think it will yeah. i don 't think my my granddaughter is going to do very well she, you know i 'm putting money like crazy away for her and, and things like that so but will she have the same opportunities that i had i don 't think so hmm. i don 't think so
0: and there 's the question. Um it seems to me, of equipping ourselves with the right tools to be able to answer that. And this, this leads to your motivation, I would imagine, to teach, but also within a broader context of learning about history. I was going on about progress, and are we learning from history, and can we actually move forward? And so you can imagine doing so in a wide variety of ways. You can imagine doing so in a I would say a quasi-simplistic way, I am the President of the United States and I noticed that in the past we went down this road and that didn't work out very well because I know my history, so maybe we should go down here. Whether one can simplify things that much is a very dubious question, but at least in theory it's possible to imagine history being able to be applied directly. Mm -hmm. But there are, of course, indirect ways of applying history and the humanities in general. This notion that by learning about past societies, by learning about... Um, what other people have written about their ambitions, their goals, their desires, their frustrations. Um, uh, Getting a deeper perspective of historical context, different cultures, different societies, the human condition, we elevate ourselves and equip ourselves with the tools to be able to make more sophisticated judgments, to be able to make more balanced and tolerant and insightful judgments about present day situations that no one could have possibly prepared us for. Is that a key aspect or a key framework uh, that that you rely upon when you want to teach history? Do you look at history that way, or do you look at it in a different context?
1: No, I think I do like this. I, I think I think that I want to do when I teach, and of course I teach undergraduates, which is a very different training from graduate students, in which we are really
0: you're teaching research methods, presumably much are, more looking at,
1: at our navel. Right. But but <laughs> but in, in, in the in, in the in the undergraduate level, one of the things that I that I want to do is to to do that that you have just so clearly described, but I also want them to understand that human beings just yes, very much like them, that like the kids who are sitting there who, who are eighteen or nineteen and therefore are not very concerned with existential questions or or have not reflected most of them anyway on what is the meaning of life, or anything like that. Although I always said, you want to know what the meaning of life is? 42. <laughs> You've your and they, and, of course, and, they, and, they, and they, of course, they have never read the <laughs> 42, let me write it down. I'll be in the exam. Let me write it down. 42 is in yeah, the exam. Yeah, but they don't
0: know what's coming, because the exam is, what's the question? <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I think that what I, what, I, what I want to do is that point out, look, don't think of yourself. Uh, that you are the final product of an revolutionary and historical process yeah. that leads to you. These people living in, in the 1st century or 5th century, in the 5th century in India or in China or in the 12th century, France or Spain or in the 16th century, are facing issues which are not very difficult, not different from the ones that you may be facing. This is how they... They, in a sense, try to get through their lives and their periods and so on. Uh, The answers are not always right. It has consequences that lead to awful things. But these are people who are alive. And what I want to say, is something that I said in The Terror of History, is that I want to convey to my students the fact that many of these people who wrote or who lived or who are peasants in a village which I tried to, in a sense, at least name to give them a name and bring them back to life, are as alive as many of us yeah. because they are lived in our memory and in our consciousness because we read them, because we are moved by what they wrote, because we, we, in a sense, are adore the music they wrote or the paintings they did, and, but these are not cultural products that are essentially, you are on a ship, these are cultural products of which you are also part of a link that like links you to all the humans who live before you. And that that wonderful cultural trophies, as Walter Benjamin said, are always paid with a terrible, terrible price. Yeah. Industrial Revolution, which I used to teach and have not taught for many years, which is this unique moment in which places, especially like England and the Netherlands, and then Germany and France, catapult into great global dominance, is paid by the workers in those satanic mills that Blake described with awful things. Who the, have
0: very little voice other than play. I mean, these are people who have been forgotten yeah. individually. They're, they're,
1: yes, they're. And, and of course, there is, there is an end to this. Yeah. There is a kind of way in which societies settle, and then workers begin to struggle for their rights and gain a series of benefits through union and, and through all that. But all that is gone, it's being now rolled back. The 150 years, or 200 years of a struggle of the working class to gain a foothold and a share of the pie have been wrong. Well, as
0: you say, this notion of inequality increasing yeah. seems, seems, seems to show that the values that, that people subscribe to or used to subscribe to are, they're at best, let's say, being increasingly indifferent to in terms of the, the goal of where we yeah. should be going as a society. I wanted to ask you about technology and the way that people look at the past because it seems to me, uh, I don't, obviously I, I'm not a historian, I don't teach people uh, history, but I could imagine that students today, undergraduates today, as technology improves, there is this almost patronizing way to look at the past. Oh, these poor people, you know, they didn't have cell, they didn't have phone, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have all the rest of this, they couldn't take pictures. And, and so you, you get this sense of these little people, you know, they had to wait they had to use uh, completely different technology. They couldn't even take pictures. They couldn't, And, and, mm-hmm. and so uh, I can imagine that that would lead to a sense of a lack of appreciation somehow of, of these individuals in the past as being fully flesh and blood, people with desires and dreams and wishes and hopes just like, just like, like themselves. They, is, is, that, is that a fair statement or is that not, not the case?
1: No, it is a fair statement because I, I actually I am not unhappy to be the age that I am. I love my undergraduates. I think I, I teach because I also love the students. I, I really, there's something that happens in the classroom, not always, but the moment of recognition, the moment in which you know, life is transformed or, or not. It happens in Paris very often. But I am, I am glad I am the age I am because the end is near, both of my teaching and of my life. Because I think that for the first time, we are teaching a generation that has grown up completely, certainly here in the internet, in the web. They, they completely lived in a technologically uh, shaped world. It's not that they don't know anything, although they don't know the things I know. They don't have the frame of references that I have. They don't really... Share on a common culture with me. It's not that they don't know that they are stupid. It's just that they know other things that I do not know. That is to say, and so how can I? Am I being a, a, an antiquarian here? I, am I being a, a, a alter reactionary who still thinks that there is values in knowing poetry or knowing history or? Or because after all, you don't need you just could Google anything and it comes up right there. Or you have a Wikipedia page which may be a true or not. Apparently it wasn't with you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is how do I
0: How do you connect with them and, and I con- can I, and, and, and and can you can you get beyond that? I mean when you it's My guess is, from what you're saying, especially the passion and the, and the love that you're showing for your students, notwithstanding their background, which is completely different, notwithstanding all the technology, when you encounter them, you are able to inspire them. You are able to tell them stories of human drama and the human condition. You are able to make people from medieval times real to them and, and their issues and their problems real and relevant. Um,
1: Not to all of them, to some. I think that it, it's... Uh you know, I teach very large classes, and not everyone is, you know, is is connected. Of course. So is it much. getting
0: harder though, on average, or is it? Can you look back and you say, well, gosh, these guys now they don't never put their bloody smartphones away or whatever it is. Ten years ago was easier. Can you, can you make that that sort of judgment objectively?
1: I think I think that this this relates back to the kind of things we were talking about, the nature of language and things like that. Right. Because I I think that there is a, a tremendous shift in the manner in which people learn and how they learn and what they learn. So yes, I might inspire them and they love my classes and they give me wonderful evaluations and because they know that I care for them and I, I bring passion and I, I, I really get rhetorically inspired in the classroom. and But, but I also know that they might like the messenger, but not necessarily the message, the message.
0: So you don't get the sense that when they're out of the classroom and there's there, there's no longer Professor Luis to, to inspire them or, or to stimulate them, that they're not going to pick up a book by Montaigne, or they're not going to do any of that sort of thing.
1: You hope that in the future they will. Not now. They are 18, 19. And, and there is such a such pressure on success, such pressure on good grades so they can go to law school or medical school or whatever, such essentially pressure on job acquisition uh, that learning for the extraordinary pleasure of learning, for the, I mean, why do I do this? I do this because... Sometime in my life, I, I got caught up into certain things and into reading, into into appreciating certain things. That it, it occurs, but is not common. And I think it has to do also with with these new ways of learning. With uh, something may have happened to the neural connections, the synapses in the brain. My granddaughter is eight years old. She has had an iPad for two years. She you she, didn't give it to her, though. I gave it to her because you I am my grandfather. You know, oh my grandfathers You're part of are. Problem. Man. I am part of a problem. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm complicit. I'm totally complicit. Uh, but you know, she, she designs things there. She she does graphic things. She she sends me things that she designs, which is very lovely. Uh, she's been read Harry Potter, but but you know, I don't see a lot of people. I ask all my students, when I have a small classes, I give them a little piece of paper, you know, a card, an index card, and I said, give me your name, your email, your are mayor, you, are major. you are level sophomore, junior, what is the last book you read for fun? What is the last movie you saw for fun? And, you know, they, I get surprising things. Mm-hmm. And some of them are very encouraging. I read The Plague by Camus, the last one. But the truth of the matter is that I bet that 99% of the books read for fun are books that were read in a class, or for a class. Mm-hmm. Yet on the other hand, I teach uh, Fia looks, which is this one credit class on Pride and Prejudice, and I get 20 females, which is a maximum enrollment, and they are all absolutely ferocious readers of Jane Austen. And they know the book. <laughs> Backwards and forwards, and they are coming there to challenge me on the things that I don't remember about the book, because they really and, and so they, there is a kind of relationship to reading that exists and it still may exist. Uh, the question is, how do we, in a sense, make this part and parcel of of the of the of the world in which we live? How do we inspire all the because. You know, there was always, I remember in Paris, I was always so impressed in Paris, because you took the metro, and everybody was reading something really important. Do you remember?
0: Yeah, well, I, 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 they're actually still reading a, a lot more.
1: They still read, but nowadays most of them are texting.
0: Yeah, it's better in Paris than it is in most places, but yeah. it's still, it's, it's going in the wrong direction. You're, yeah. Well, it's going in a different direction.
1: Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. they used to read all the time, and now they're mostly texting. Right.
0: They uh, actually it, have Wi-Fi in the metro. There,
1: that's so, right. Uh, uh, or so 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 <laughs> oh, cell phones. So you know, you you, you could see that. And I do not know. I don't you know? I don't think my pessimistic views are. At well, the end, at the end, I think in the terror of history, I, I have this very pessimistic ending, but also. The fact that uh, this is what we do with our lives—we, we sort of embrace certain things that give us extraordinary uh, rewards, uh, and most of them are through art and through learning and through literature. And and there is a, a book that I mentioned in that uh, in that book in the letter of history which is a book that impressed me to no end. And I can show you my copy, which is filled with little... dog, Annotations. Yeah, doc- no, I never write on books, but little markings in the page from little pieces of paper. Okay. It's uh, Bruce Duffy. I think it was his first book, and the only successful book he wrote, I think, is called The World As I Found It, because it, it, rem- right. it reminds me that you mentioned Bertrand Russell, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of fictionalized a description of the relationship of Bertrand Russell, A.G. Murray, and Wittgenstein. And it's a a powerful, heartfelt book about these three people grasping with attempts to make sense of the world. And that's what, at the end, we are trying to do, to make sense of the world. And that's what I want to tell the students that they have to get to the point, okay, well don't do it at 18. Have go and have a ball now. But Sometime or another you have to really take a stock of yourself and try to see how you make sense of the world and of yourself in that world.
0: One of the interesting things about history and, and the humanities mm. is that one certainly has a sense, there's certainly an argument that it's much more ongoing in terms of one's personal evolution. If you study engineering, if you study uh, mathematics. If you study theoretical physics, it's possible, of course, to be reading books uh, throughout one's life. It's possible to be picking up a book on quantum field theory when you're mm-hmm. in your 40s and, and read it. The information is there; it's public, and so forth. But it's it's highly unlikely that people will 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 do that. There's an understanding that when you're 18, when you're 19, when you're in your formative years you'd get this training and then you develop, or you don't get this training and then you go off in a different track. History is different. History is something that uh, there's a societal expectation that the people who choose to do that at university, who take your courses, will be stimulated, and then as you say, they will continue to read history throughout their lives, but there's also an expectation that people who may not be history majors will also engage in the historical process and, and, and be stimulated by that throughout their lives, is, uh, do you look at that, uh, do, you, do you also do teaching at different levels? Are you thinking, can... are, are you thinking, because of, just focusing on the 18, 19 year olds, as you say, go out and have a ball, that seems reasonable, when you're 18 years of age, you've got a whole lot of other things, your hormones are ranging, your, 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 yeah. <laughs> your, your appreciation for some intellectual subtleties may not be what they, what they might be when you're 30. Um, but this is a lifelong pursuit and a lifelong intellectual development, and as a passionate teacher, you must hit people at all sorts of different
1: levels. Yes, and, and, and it is very rewarding when they write to you 20, 30 years afterwards and said, oh, I always remember this, and it's really... Or, or for example, many who become lawyers, and then they have this passion for history, and they, they really wish they could have been historians, except that they couldn't bear the thought of, making such low salaries. So, uh, you know, there is an impact. There is a kind of, uh, there is a kind of uh, gain here. Uh, But I don't think I teach at the same level in all the classes, the the, the topic determines. For example, this class um, on World History, which is an entering class for freshmen, my only purpose here, I have only one purpose, is to de the West, to de Europe. To point out to them that some of these ideas that they so cherish, that they think are original, really originated elsewhere, in Asia, in India, in China. that 500 years before Jesus, there's somebody who is saying exactly the same, except right. that he is saying it from a secular point of view. No God involved here or the fact that you know, I, always, I always do this in all the classes. What year is it? You know, they look at me like, huh? 2014, you know, 2014. why? They never understand that chronology is an articulation of power. Right. That we have the year 2014 because the West won. If China would have won in the 19th century, in the 20th century, if we would have been a world that it was not eurocentric or western centric then we will have a very different calendar that these things are arbitrary impositions of power mm. they they become
0: more wow. sens- so they become more sensitive to yeah. the, su- the subtleties of history and yes. how uh, how it permeates their lives
1: or you know or or a kind of cultural appreciation I, I this is something that i always insist in the class cultures there are no universal values. Oh yes, yes, there is God. Well, not really. You know, mm-hmm. billion and a half Chinese are animistic. They believe in ancestor worship, or, or nothing at all, or they are entire civilizations that have no God. Um,
0: but we can. So, so let me let me interject. Uh, so I'm not going to interject for. for or on religious grounds, but I'm going to interject in the sense of universal human values, as we now understand it. We have uh, whether or not these are truly universal is a, is a question I'm not even going to bother attempting to address. But but de facto, it's universal in the sense that we have almost every country, I think every country in the United Nations that has at least signed on to the to the, to the, <laughs> the Rights of Man, Universal Declaration of Human Values. So so we can say that there are some things that we at least uh, on, on a, on a near-universal level throughout contemporary humanity, we acknowledge should but be done, even if we don't actually.
1: But, <laughs> but, do the, but the truth of the matter, of course, is that that is also uh, something that can be questioned because let's say that the Aztecs would have conquered the world. Right. And they are engaging in human sacrifices and, uh, and kind of control, symbolic wars where they capture people to execute in the killing stone. Is the system unethical for the Aztecs? Or it makes perfect sense? So the the West won, wins. We have a a philosophical tradition that is born in the 18th century, which is part also of the Judeo-Christian Arabic tradition. Uh, we pass a, a declaration of the rights of man, and the citizen, in France, which is a one that really carries oomph because slaves are free. Right. Uh, so, so this reflects a particular. I am not saying that. Sacrificing people is good. No, 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 I'm I I am too... You're you're taking
0: universality literally. You're looking at different societies, different human societies, different times. and
1: and for each of these cultures or societies, the inner system that essentially organizes their lives is perfectly rational. It's only when in contact with other systems and contestations of power that one system... Essentially overwhelms the other and imposes values upon the other system. Do we think that uh, murdering ten million people is good? Of course not. It's yeah. awful. This is the ultimate. But you know, is the West establishes a system of values that is then imposed upon the rest of the world, and that is given. To ethical valence over others. I am better than you, because I am a Christian, and you are a politist, and therefore, I have the right to conquer you. That is the the problem, that if you really dig deep into these values, you know, think of the Old Testament. What a cruel book this yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh,
0: I'm, I'm with you there. And uh, luckily, most people don't actually know what's written
1: in the Old Testament. So, <laughs> Yes, or, 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 or they actually they do know, but they only do the parts they want to know. And therefore, they neglect the other. Or even the New Testament, which has uh, some very uh, sort of terrible passages on women and Mm-hmm. Sure. But you know there, there are changes in, in values that occurred at particular moments in time that that, that are significant.
0: I wanted to ask you about research as well. I, I, mm-hmm. When I had a I had a conversation, as you know, with John Elliott uh, a little while ago, and we were talking about how the world of research has changed, um, and just. The notion of going into the archives and having physical contact with uh, the papers that you knew were original documents, and being able to breathe and breathe the air and smell them, and just a tactile sense of interacting on a personal way Mm -hmm. with the Um, documentation—that way of life as a researcher seems to be disappearing, or has has disappeared. He pointed out that there are some advantages to technology. He talked about, in particular, a technology where ink stains can be removed and so forth, and so you might be able to preserve the Or you,
1: go, you can see a, a palimpsest. You could you could actually, using NASA technology, you could actually read right. the document before. Well,
0: that, so these are, these are obvious advantages from a historian's point of view. But in the meantime, uh, he certainly expressed regret that the the old days of being able to to be of, of not being able to but actually being forced to immerse yourself in that environment and to be somehow inhaling the air uh, associated with this this place and therefore putting oneself in that time is no
1: longer um do you do you concur with absolutely that? completely john elliott uh, who i met in 1975 and who is the third leg of this of people who I had tremendous influence on me. Uh, it was incredibly He's a man of extreme generosity. And he was very generous to me and has always been. And I am a great admirer of John. And, uh, and he's absolutely right. I was not going to be a researcher or a or a writer of books and articles. I became so at Princeton when Joseph Israel took me to the special collection and gave me a Norman charter and I could touch it. I could wow. feel the past <laughs> and I could barely read it and he sort of looked the other way, but it was like touching something that, that was alive through time. I could write now my dissertation without leaving this, the apartment. Everything that I look and read for my dissertation is now either published or digitalized. The Great Archive of the Crown of Aragon, which is the biggest medieval archive in Europe, if you go there now, most of the documents will not be given to you. You will be given access to a digital copy. So you could actually see it better. You could make it bigger, right. you could read, right. but something is lost in translation here because we no longer have that kind of feel of the past, which is so, for medievalists who work with manuscripts, with parchment, is such a, I will show you some that I have. Right. You, we could either come out or I could bring it down or something like that, but it's something that that is really significant and important, and it is no longer so. You can no longer do that in most cases. As I said, I could have written my dissertation without stepping out of this office.
0: With respect to your research, were there things that surprised you when you were, uh, as you were doing?
1: Uh, when I began? As, yeah, but, uh, I
0: mean, did uh, have you, in terms of, not so much uh, discovery, shocking, trivial discovery the world is completely different from what I had imagined, but um, the process of doing research as well as your actual findings, were you?
1: This is a, a medievalist uh, in a special, but some other historians do. Uh, always go, most of them, we go through the same shock, which is two things. You arrive at the archives, I went to Burgos because my family is from Burgos, and Strayer thought, well, may as well do that. Those were the days in which this advisor told you what to do. And I arrived at the archive, and I also went to the library. The first thing is that I found a book that apparently had done what I wanted to do. At the end, it didn't. I did a very different kind of dissertation from that book, but it was there and it was very scary. The second one is that you enter the archives, you have read manuscripts back in Princeton, you have gone through paleography, you arrive in the archive, you see the manuscript, and you cannot read anything. And what? you can't read them. You, 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 with some exceptions of people who are very gifted, you arrive there, and you cannot make head of tails. <laughs> so I am there. <laughs> for two weeks and not getting through this. So I went to Madrid and I met some friends there in Madrid and I had a great time and went back and I, I could read it. You know, it's, it's, it, it takes time for you to begin to understand the hand, because these things are professional scribes. The documents for everyday life are really things that are done in, in a hurry and, and so beginning to reconstruct word by word and finally you read it without any difficulties, but most medievalists, I would say, ninety-five percent of us, go through the archives and go through this experience.
0: Must have been, must have been terribly deflating. And uh, you not known, you arrive, you you fly all the way. Over. <laughs>
1: no, I I, I I I could say to myself, okay, I can go back, and go back to driving a cab in New York. I mean, what the hell? Because it was it was absolutely scary, and and then I went back and you know, it became something that I could do. But But nobody told you that this might happen? I mean, Nobody told me that. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I tell that to all my students. It's it's normal not to be able to make sense of this. Mostly because there's a lot of abbreviations, and until you begin to grasp the abbreviations. So what I do now to the students is that I give them a document, and then I give them a printed version of the document and the translation of the printed version so that they can see they can they can see oh, they're just spoon feeding them man i mean well <laughs> <laughs> what what is the what is the alternative that they come back and say, i cannot do they this drive cubs, you know i mean <laughs> <laughs> and the the experience
0: of of supervising other people to do their research is that is that something that you enjoy as much as undergrad cuz i get the sense that that your real no. passion lies with teaching the undergraduates and stimulating people. Is that, is that a fair comment?
1: Absolutely. I hate to say this, because in case a graduate students see this, I, I have been very fortunate. I have not trained a lot of people. I straight trained one person a year. And I have been pretty sort of close to that. And so I have not trained immense number of students. Uh, m- Almost all of them have been wonderful people to work with that I really like. Uh, some of them are utterly brilliant. Uh, brilliant in way and more professional than I was when I was at that level. Yeah. Now, there is a professionalization of the discipline that is very different from the way it was.
0: Is that specialization? Or? A specialization
1: but also tools that they have and training and expectations and since the market is so competitive, Getting into graduate school is so competitive. Getting into the job market is so competitive. So it tends to, a kind of Darwinian world out there. I see it when I read applications for fellowships. And I look at them and there are 33 candidates and I, you know, the same fellowship that I got in 1979. And I look at this application, and I said, I would be number 34 here. And I, I'm, I'm not being modest about this. It's, it's absolutely true. The people are far better trained today than I was. Well, that alone must
0: be—I mean, that's a posit- That's something to put on the positive side of the ledger. We were yeah, talking yeah about some of Because
1: essentially, things. what has happened is that we have become far more professional. The, the demands on on what is expected of you is has really increased dramatically from from the past.
0: Does it manifest itself? I want to let you answer the question, yeah. which I haven't done yet, but I, I will. But um, does that manifest itself sometimes? With too much specialization, so this is what I what I mean. I, I can imagine um, in the past when one one didn't need quite as much specialization, uh, one could make connections to different areas. One had a wider general uh-huh. culture, general knowledge to, to, to draw from, and, and things might get a little bit stale. If you know that the old academic saw that that as you increase up the food chain, you you know more and more about less and less, yes, and you know everything about nothing.
1: I think that with then there are exceptions. There are people who are polymath and know a lot of stuff. I think that on the whole this relates back to a conversation we had before which I think was not on tape about historians writing for each other uh, as opposed to historians writing for a wider public and I think that uh, we have become so specialized that we know less and less about other parts and more and more about this narrow world in which we move and uh, you know, I've been doing this for 41 years, so I know a lot of stuff. The sure. students say, well, how do you know so much? Like, I have 41 <laughs> years of doing this. You know. But I know it not in depth, but superficially. I can speak about any topic, but I am not an expert in any of them. Now people really know one thing, and uh, it, it clashes. Most of the jobs are in small colleges. You are going to be a generalist we are going to do many different things. So there are two things happening. One, our training is very narrow. On the other hand, the demands of the market forces them to really have something else. For example, medievalists are expected to do world history, or Western Civ, in a small place, in a small college, because, you know, there are very few faculty, and you have to serve. That's a
0: big ambit, though. If you're a medievalist, you have to do world history. yeah,
1: yeah. World history is the second most, well, it's the the most desired second field that people want in the job market today. So, I have one student who is in the job market, who I think is going to get a job, which is, inshallah, uh, and he worked for a program at UC Davis, in which he did all the research for a seventh grade lesson on world history.
0: Seventh
1: grade. Yeah, there, there, there is a new kind of a standards in California, and in the seventh grade they learned about something we call sites of encounter, places where different civilizations come together. Sicily, for example, where Muslims, Greeks, Normans, Christians, right, sure, sure. Jews yeah, live together. So he has done research for that, and, and and it can only be of help, because he can... Going to the job market and said, "Hey, I have also know this." But his thesis is on language shifting or code shifting in the Crown of Aragon in the 12th and 13th century. Why some people write in Latin and some other people write in the vernacular?
0: which is quite specific and to to a time and place and uh, and subject. But I cut you off when you were comparing your desire and passion for undergraduate teaching as opposed to to graduate
1: supervision. I, 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 this is my problem. It has nothing to do really with undergraduates. I have the memory of a graduate seminar at Princeton, which was done by a legendary figure named Phillips Gilbert great historian, great scholar, a German refugee uh, who was at the Institute for Advanced Study. Mm -hmm. And there was a seminar in which he did not say anything. And yet he was able to get everybody discussing. And I find myself frustrated by how much I talk in the seminar. Even though I love to talk, I I don't want to talk in a graduate seminar. And so I always, you know, of all the graduate seminars I have given, I had two of them on the Western Mediterranean, which were absolutely wonderful because I said very little.
0: But that presumably depends on the, the students. On the qua- I mean, it's yeah. out of your control. To yeah. able, the less you say, yeah, the but less. But
1: I, I, always, I always had this feeling, and again, it's not an attempt to put myself down or anything like that, that I am not asking the right questions, that I am not asking the right questions that lead to the kind of in-depth discussions or or, or that that generate something like that.
0: Let me ask you about people who are contemporary individuals who are practicing history now, who you look to as Greatest historians of of this age, or some of the greatest historians of this age. People, uh, I'm asking for people independent of those you've already mentioned. Uh, they might be younger people. They might be contemporaries who who you think, wow, this person really is really doing a, a wonderful job as a as a professional research historian and or as a writer or or.
1: I, I I think I will emphasize the fact that I am really talking mostly about medievalists, although I could mention some of my colleagues, for example, Uh, and and the list is significant. I think of the medievalists that I think are people who are amazing and wonderful and friends as well, but they are really great medievalists. I I could think of someone like David Nirenberg at Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, whose work communities of violence completely transformed the landscape of Iberian history. Uh, I can think of Daniel Smail, whose first book, Imagining Cartographies about Marseille, was absolutely amazing book. I can and he had work on big history, you know, the kind of time, long time history. Uh, I could think of Bill Jordan, who's a very prolific at Princeton, William Jordan, and Paul Friedman, who was very eclectic and did a terrific book on peasant. Uh, on, the, on the origins of peasant servitude in, in, in Catalonia, but who just wrote a book on spices out of the East. Uh, so it's it a very wonderful and affable friend. And there are other people in that generation who are remarkable and very promising. I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking of people in the United States. I can mention other people abroad. Peter Linehan, who is in my generation, or R.E. Moore, who is also in my generation, who are really significant, or Angus Mackay, who is now dead, or Jack Legoff, who right. um, I could think of Lynn Hunt, uh, who is my colleague here, who's retired now, it's really, or Margaret Jacob, or Carlo Ginsberg, who was here at UCLA and who is a historian beyond belief.
0: What makes a historian beyond belief? Well, his
1: originality, his originality. He is such an original thinker. He, many years ago, found a group of documents in the Vatican archives and wrote a book called Il Benandanti in, in Italian, Night Walkers, uh, the Night Battles is called in English, which is which really a remarkable kind of anthropological study of a sect that would be declared witches by the Inquisition, but who were essentially practicing some form of uh, pre-Christian uh, agricultural cults. Mm. And he wrote The Cheese on the Worms and many, many other books that are really quite remarkable. Peter Brown at Princeton, retired now, uh, who worked his entire career is, uh, is really very remarkable so
0: originality creativity insight uh,
1: and and volume right. of good things one after another
0: is there a temperament that that medievalists have in particular can you do you, do you guys you have had jokes amongst each other you do walk down the street and say there's a medievalist do you do well, is there a certain is there I certain char- are there certain characteristics that that, 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 that uh, somehow can be cl- classified well, with medievalists? On, on,
1: until recently, we would have said that it was uh, uh, first of all the, the need for linguistic skills and for paleographical skills that sets medievalists apart. But then, if you ask an ancient historian, he would say, "Oh no, no, we know more languages than you do." Sure. Someone like Peter Brown who reads Syrian and Greek and you name it, he, he he reads it. So that's in another level of uh, expertise. So, but those are the people. You know, they they are they are others, younger. But,
0: but in terms of disposition, uh, okay, uh, the people who take. I mean, can you can you make any broad characterizations within no, the field come, and we, say we, this guy's an antique. He has an antique mindset. This has a medieval no, mindset.
1: No, we, we come in the, in all flavors. Sure.
0: Were you ever were you ever tempted to? to move to other areas, other times? I have,
1: I have, I began as a medievalist, but I now do early modern as well. So that's not much of a change, but I move into the 16th century. And I actually do not believe that the distinctions between medieval and early modern holds water. So I always do a history that crosses 1500, the barrier and so on. Although I must confess that original research I have only done on the Middle Ages. I once, uh, many years ago, because I talked to the students, and the students have all these existential problems, thought very seriously. Twice I have thought, of, thought seriously about my career. Once, that I wanted to become a counselor, uh, go and get a, an M, a MSW and, right. and, and do counseling, and until somebody told me, you do more good as a teacher talking to them without training than, than training. Which is not necessarily true, but fulfills a different function. The other one is that I thought seriously, and I have thought many times of teaching in in secondary or primary school. Uh, I think I would like. It's too late now, but I, I would have, you have done
0: to any be. volunteer work. Have you done any? any I work. I at work,
1: all? I work uh, with. Uh, we have in the history department here an office that works with public schools, yeah. and I. I Talk to teachers of primary school teachers. I train them sometimes, and I, for example, sponsor someone who is a historical fiction young adult writer to come and talk to the kids and to and to undergraduates and graduates who want to write historical fiction.
0: Really? So what do you? So let's talk about the primary school for a moment. Um, what when you talk about training teachers? What What do you? For example, you say to them? How
1: do you, How does yeah, that work? Well, what it is is that the teachers. Are, the teachers are very much in primary and secondary school. they are pretty constricted into the kind of things they can do in the sure. classroom. They, they have a lesson plan that they have to follow. so this is a kind of enrichment programs for teachers where if you 're going to be talking about the the opening of the Atlantic, I will go and give a lecture to them in a sense how this is how you teach this topic uh, and so I will. T- and I uh, next week is the Medieval Academy meets here, and I am sponsoring two sessions of high school teachers or seven grade teachers who are going to come in. Not not high school, seven grade teachers who are going to come in. I'm going to do a demonstration, which I will present uh, of these lesson plans on sites of encounter.
0: Well. And, and, and in terms of historical fiction, when you, when you talk to people who are writing historical fiction, do you talk more about the historical process per se, do you, or do you talk more specifically about to the, them about medieval aspects if they're interested in, in setting, yeah, a, I, setting a novel and that, in that I, time? I, in
1: I, I think it's more a kind of providing, make sure that the context is right. Uh, there is a case in which there is a wonderful adult fiction, a young adult fiction writer, his name is Avi, Uh, and he has won two Newberry Awards. So, you know, he's somebody who writes a lot and publishes a lot, and is very successful. And he has seen one of my tapes, and in one of my tapes he got the idea of writing a novel about a boy in 1381, England, during the peasant uprising. Mm -hmm. And he wrote to me, and said, because I always give my email, to, when I give these lectures, I tell people, feel free to, to write to me. So he wrote to me and said, I'm, I'm writing this adult fiction book, and young adult fiction, and uh, I it's finished, would you like to take a look at it? And, and he sent it to me, and, I, and it was pretty, pretty accurate. And I make small little fixes here and there, and he dedicated the book to me. It's called Crisping. The Cross of Let and he won the Nobel Award. So, so, with that, I am very proud of.
0: So, history lives and thrives despite uh, all sociological pressures. I, to the we, we <laughs> hope
1: so. <laughs> we hope so. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking. A to great you pleasure. Thank you very. Thank much. you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual e-book and as part of the e-book and paperback conversations about history, Volume One along with separate discussions with David Canadine, Michael Gordon, Margaret Jacob, and Andrew Wallace-Hadron. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while well, those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.